by uh, thanking the Alumni Council, in particular uh, Kappa, for the honor of being selected as a Hoffman Scholar. My talk today tells of a community struggling to understand the implications of dramatic economic and particularly financial change, a community wracked by deep political divisions in which people took advantage of expanding forms of media and new social spaces to, be, to debate the impact of new financial wealth on their nation's economic prosperity, political virtue, and social welfare. And I speak, of course, of 18th century Britain. So by looking briefly at the story of one financial crisis from that era, the so-called South Sea Bubble of 1720, and one person's analysis of that crisis, that of a quirky gentleman by the name of Archibald Hutchison, I hope to offer a glimpse of the deep historical connections between two seemingly different kinds of values. On the one hand, the mathematical value of financial objects, and on the other, the moral and political values through which people in that community understood the economic changes that confronted them. So, sorry. So this talk is taken from one part of my dissertation which is entitled Calculated Values, A Political History of Economic Numbers in Britain. In 1688, England, Scotland, and Ireland underwent a major political revolution. Britons at that time, and for centuries thereafter, celebrated this so-called glorious revolution, which ushered in a new age of representative government, frequent more frequent elections, and greater freedom of the press. Yet many Britons also lamented that they now lived in a polity that was bitterly partisan, deceitful and corrupt. Economic transformations exacerbated these anxieties. Coincident with this glorious revolution, Britons experienced a broad financial revolution. The period saw the emergence of Britain's first national debt, the foundation of the Bank of England, and the rapid expansion of London's unofficial stock market, the so-called Exchange Alley. Now these transformations made questions of trust into major political issues. What did it mean, for example, to loan money on the faith and credit of parliament, or to trust in the value of a piece of paper? How did the broader public really know that all the money that it was paying in taxes and investing in public debt were really going where they were supposed to? As Britain struggled with these questions of trust and uncertainty, one tool of reasoning came to assume a new importance in political culture and that was mathematical calculation. My dissertation as a whole argues that in this period, Britons fashioned a new style of distinctly quantitative economic reasoning, but not because they self-consciously wanted to create a science of economics or even needed to analyze how to make profitable investments. Rather, they turned to calculation as a political and a moral tool, as a way to critique government policies on the basis of limited information and to interrogate political and corporate leaders they distrusted. So the pivotal episode in my dissertation concerns the first truly dramatic crash of London's young stock market, the so-called South Sea Bubble. So the calamitous rise and fall of the stock of the South Sea Company was, perhaps unexpectedly, a kind of triumphant moment for calculation as a tool of political and moral reasoning. Hopefully you'll understand something of what I mean by that when I'm done with this story. So by the late 17-teens, Britain's national debt amounted to over 40 million pounds, 
which was actually the kind of best estimate of what the equivalent of sort of GDP was in those days. And it was seemingly going to take generations to pay. Much of the money borrowed by the government had been in the form of what were called irredeemable bonds. Bonds that not only carried high interest rates, but couldn't even be paid off even if the money existed to pay them back. Government leaders and critics both searched for some way to encourage creditors holding such irredeemable debts to voluntarily exchange them. It was the Young South Sea Company that offered the most ambitious solution. The company had been created in 1711 to aid with government financing and also to carry out a lucrative monopoly trade with Spanish America, in particular to trade African slaves. In April 1720, the British Parliament approved a new plan by the company to exchange new South Sea Company stock for about three quarters of all outstanding government debts. The company, which paid a 7.5 million pound fee for the right to carry out this transaction, received not only an influx of capital to trade with, but even more importantly, earned the right, which was very carefully regulated at the time, to sell new stock to the public for cash. What resulted was a truly dramatic and indeed unprecedented experience for contemporaries. Investors went crazy for South Sea stock. The stock's price, which hovered around the 170s or 180s during early spring of 1720, quickly ballooned, hitting about 1,000 pounds per share in midsummer. But in the fall, this bubble quickly deflated, falling to below 300 pounds per share by early October, and ending the year over 80% below its maximum price. Now, in the many stories that were told about the bubble in the months and years that followed, one thing seemed clear. The meteoric rise of the price of South Sea Company stock defied mathematical logic. In retrospect, it seemed obvious that throughout the year 1720, the fundamental calculable value of South Sea stock did not come anywhere close to justifying these astronomical prices that investors seemed willing to pay for it. So as one anonymous pamphleteer writing just as the crash was sort of happening in early October of 1720, put it this way. The frenzy rose so high that even mathematical demonstrations, of which this subject was always capable, were slighted. But how did people in 1720, before the bubble burst, actually think about financial value? Even more importantly, how did they attempt to calculate it? And why did they do so? This became a major question in my research. And one of the things I found was that for analysts in 1720, calculating the value of South Sea stock was anything but obvious. It was actually a very challenging technical problem that pushed the boundaries of contemporary knowledge. Different analysts, on the basis of the same information, produced a wide range of plausible conclusions about the stock's value. And I don't have enough time to get quite into specifics about this, but I will note that there are some interesting connections between this aspect of my research and recent work in behavioral economics. But if investors and analysts really had so many things to disagree about when it came to the valuation of South Sea stock, where did people get the idea that the value of South Sea stock always had one clear answer that was subject, as that one pamphleteer said, to mathematical demonstration? <clears throat> 
That idea was largely the work of one pretty strange man by the name of Archibald Hutchison. Before, during, and after the bubble in 1720, Hutchison provided a series of highly detailed and for his day technically sophisticated calculations that seemed to many after the fact to have revealed the basic mathematical truth about the South Sea bubble. It was seen to have predicted the downfall of the South Sea scheme and to have proved what the real mathematical value of South Sea stock was throughout 1720. Commentators in that year and beyond celebrated Hutchison's calculations as prescient acts of financial sanity and even great acts of patriotism. In fact, in 2004, the financial historian Richard Dale granted Hutchison the title of the father of investment analysis. Now, no one indeed championed the power of Hutchison's mathematical analyses more than Archibald Hutchison himself, who wrote in early 1721 that I have in and since the month of March last year published several calculations relating to the South Sea scheme. I now perceive my several calculations, though not exact, came sufficiently near the truth to serve all the ends I thereby proposed. But who was this financial soothsayer, Archibald Hutchison? And critically, why did he spend so much time developing elaborate calculations about the value of South Sea stock? The reason is not what you might expect. Hutchison was not a financier, wasn't much of an investor, and he certainly wasn't an economist. He was a politician. And his financial calculations were part of a distinctly political and moral agenda. To put it simply, Hutchison turned to calculation because he didn't trust people, particularly those who had political and economic power. So Archibald Hutchison was born around 1660 to Ulster Scottish parents. He trained as a lawyer and did what many enterprising men of the middling sort did in his day. Namely, he went overseas to the colonies, becoming attorney general of the Leeward Islands in 1688. He returned to England in 1704, where he resumed his legal practice and was elected to parliament for the port city of Hastings in 1713. Once he got to Parliament, he quickly alienated everybody, particularly the leadership of both major political parties, the Tories and the Whigs. Instead, he fashioned a role for himself as a kind of political gadfly, whose main purpose in life seemed to be pestering whoever was in power. Between 1713 and 1719, he made long speeches in Parliament and published extensive technical pamphlets criticizing government tax policy, wasteful expenditures on the military, and especially the growth of the national debt. But if there's one thing that Hutchison hated more than the national debt, it was secrecy, particularly government secrecy. To Hutchison, one of the worst things about the national debt was the fact that no one in the public seemed to know how big that debt was or how much revenue was available to pay for it. Because the government agents responsible for such things didn't seem able or willing to tell anyone. So Hutchison became determined to figure the problem out for himself. So Hutchison developed creative and conceptually innovative mathematical models for understanding problems of public finance, models which allowed him to make big conclusions out of small bits and pieces of information he managed to get his hands on from the government. In particular, he used these mathematical models as a way to goad insiders into revealing their secrets. One of the interesting things is 
you can actually see his values not only in the kind of words he uses to describe the calculations he's doing, but actually they're kind of built into the structure of the calculations that he provides. So fast forward slightly to early 1720. With the British Parliament poised to entrust tens of millions of pounds to one quasi-public company, the South Sea Company, Hutchison stood up in protest. Hutchison was deeply worried about the company's scheme, but not because he predicted it was going to cause some kind of financial bubble. There really was no precedent for that. Rather, he disliked the scheme because it threatened to consolidate too much property and too much power in the hands of one secretive cabal, a cabal which Hutchison typically didn't trust. There was, after all, a lot that the public did not know about the South Sea Company. Critically, investors had very little official information about the company's profits from foreign trade. Though the company didn't seem to have actually gotten very far in its American trading business in its first nine years, it did still hold a special contract to engage in what many in early 18th century Britain thought was the most promising growth industry of the day, the trafficking in African slaves. So all of these mysteries about the South Sea Company bothered Hutchison deeply. Now, one thing I should note that did not bother him was the part about trading slaves. He, like many in his day, had no problem with that at all. And so Hutchison turned to his most potent political tool. He built a mathematical model. As a way to make sense of some of these South Sea mysteries, he developed an elaborate series of calculations which asked, if the company's price is stock is priced at x, so it's in the blue box on the left, then that implies that the company's trading profits must be worth y. The figure's in the yellow box. This was a political and moral calculation for Hutchison as much as it was an economic one. Hutchison was trying to show that if the company offered new stock to the public at certain prices, then they were effectively promising the public that they could make a certain amount in trading profits. So Hutchison's big agenda was really to convince Parliament that it was far too risky to allow the company to continue to go through with this scheme unless the company revealed its secrets. Is it not therefore reasonable, he asked, that the South Sea Company should explain from whence their advantages are to arise, which may be a solid foundation for the value of their stock? His big fear was not just that the scheme might cause economic turmoil, but that company leaders and their political allies were in fact using the scheme as a way to engineer even more nefarious political designs. To risk at once the liberties of Britain by making the path to arbitrary power plain and easy is a measure which I never can come into, Hutchison wrote. For so great a company, under the influence of an ill-designing ministry, may load the nation with heavier chains than the debts we are endeavoring to discharge. So these initial computational criticisms had, at best, a minor effect. They didn't stop Parliament from going forward with the scheme, and they didn't stop investors from handing over millions of pounds for South Sea stock. After the bubble burst, though, Hutchison's mathematics found a new kind of success. In the winter of 1720 to 1721, after the stock had crashed, Angry investors and their political representatives began demanding an explanation for what had gone wrong and for evidence of who to blame. Hutchison repurposed his mathematical models for this function, 
retrospectively calculating what the South Sea Company stock had been worth at various points in 1720. For example, Hutchison was able to prove in his mind that in May 1720, the value of a share of South Sea stock had only been worth 120 pounds, not the 350 to 400 pound price tag the company was selling stock to the public for at the time. So a few people listened to Hutchison's warnings before the scheme. The public embraced his calculations in the bubble's aftermath. Appointed a member of the parliamentary committee, ironically called the Committee of Secrecy, um, which was sort of, they did all of their operations in secret, which is sort of ironic given his um, strange proclivities. Um, but appointed to this committee, appointed to uh, investigate the crisis and prosecute its supposed offenders, Hutchison literally wrote his financial, financial mathematics into the official autopsy reports of the crisis that pu Parliament published. Hutchison, in fact, argued that his mathematical calculations served as a kind of criminal evidence, proving that the company's directors had betrayed the public trust by selling their stock at a price they must have known it was not worth. So by providing an angry public with a mathematical story about who is responsible for the bubble, Hutchison's story gave people in his own time new evidence of the power of mathematical calculation as a means for dealing with the anxieties of their own changing political and economic world. This is what I mean when I say that the South Sea bubble was a kind of triumph for mathematical rationality. Because through Hutchison, it gave new prominence to mathematics, not as a tool of economic reasoning, but as an instrument for assessing financial morality. Yet Hutchison's achievements weren't without their side effects. For one, his idea that the financial mathematics of the South Sea bubble were always mathematically straightforward was very much a myth, one that has perhaps clouded people's understanding of that bubble and many other bubbles for centuries. As I mentioned, for people living in 1720, even those who were sophisticated and well-informed, the question of what South Sea stock was actually worth was never nearly so simple as Hutchison claimed it was in retrospect. Those complexities, it seems, were quickly forgotten in favor of Hutchison's comforting, moralistic mathematical story. Even further, to conclude, we might wonder how Hutchison's ideas contributed to a somewhat bigger idea, the idea or more properly, the hope that the dangers and uncertainties of finance were something that might be controlled in both an economic and an ethical sense by the power of calculation. That, I think, is an idea whose implications we are only just beginning to understand. Thank you. We have time for some questions, but I want you to please wait for the microphone. So if you want to ask a question, please wait for the microphone. Do you think that um, that mathematics, you say that controlling finance with numbers, is the same kind of uh, deception that, I mean self-deception probably, that the derivative analyses and all that sort of stuff have led to I mean, the recent issue that we had? Well, so I, I, was, I was intentionally seeding that idea. Um, so I'm glad you, you picked it up. But I think that um, there's an interesting kind of 
another kind of story that sometimes you'll see around, um, which is that people in the 18th century thought, just didn't think finance made any sense. Right? They, that they thought it was this like, great mystery and it was like totally uh, not subject to reason. Um, whereas, you know, in some ways, the, the story of, of finance in the second half of the 20th century is very much a story about trying to control uncertainty by doing the math better. Right? And, that, and that's a story that you know, largely starts um, in the 60s and the 70s with things like the, the Black-Scholes equation and is very much continued up through today. Um, and I think there is an interesting sense in which, in which Hutchison, what he was doing, is sort of the beginning of that story. You mentioned that the South Sea bubble wasn't thought of as a bubble at the time, that there was no real precedent for this sort of run-up and then rapid drop-off. And, and I wonder the role of sort of financial calculation, if it had a role in, in, in the creation of the concept of the bubble and in quantifying what it meant to be a bubble yeah. or just a run-up and then a subsequent decline for a company. And could you just speak so, probably about that? Yeah, so, so there was, before 1720 in English, there is the concept of a bubble. Um, it's actually kind of a verb in a strange way. Um, and it, it, it has a few meanings. There, there did, people did talk about bubble companies, little companies that would get like a bunch of enthusiasm and then kind of go nowhere. Um, but not in, nothing on this scale at all. Um, the term bubble was also used to kind of connote sort of general sort of dis financial deceit in a way. So people would talk about bubbling someone else out of their money. Um, which was a strange, and actually that aspect of it kind of gets lost in a way. And I think in some ways um, what happens is that this bubble becomes the iconic model of a bubble, right? And in part because there is this very strong story that Hutchison and others, but mostly him, lay out that what it is is it's a deviation between market price and fundamental value. And I think that idea, which is still, is still basically the exact definition of what a bubble is, even in modern kind of uh, economic theory, pretty much starts at exactly this point. Uh, you said there was an informal stock exchange. Um, I'm curious as to when that started and then uh, what, uh, what was, uh, done after the bubble with respect to the structure right. and regulation of the stock exchange. So that's a, so it's informal in the sense that it, um, essentially, there, there were regulated spaces for trade. For example, the, the, the Royal Exchange in London, um, which is, dates to well before this, was a kind of closed area for doing business. And in fact, the business in trading stocks was kind of driven out of the exchange because it was considered sort of like un kind of surly and, and dirty in its own ways into this kind of alley next to the exchange, this idea of kind of exchange alley. Um, and so one of the things that happens in the aftermath of the, of the bubble is an attempt to regulate um, kind of trade, the, the practices in stock trading. So one of the, so Hutchison particularly places a lot of the blame on the South Sea Company itself. Other people make a kind of a bigger deal about the role of sort of what are called stock jobbers at the time in doing this. And so there is an effort to regulate that. 
um, the actual sort of enclosure of the stock exchange and sort of formal creation of the stock exchange is a later, um, I believe, 19th century phenomenon. But it is one of the response. There is some attempt to sort of regulate these activities in response to this. Last question in the back. You had a, a bullet point on one of the slides that said there were some links between behavioral economic research mm -hmm. and uh, some of the things you looked into. Did you look into any of the specific recent behavioral economic um, sort of ideas that people have, have come up with? And did you go into, into greater depth about that? So, so the particular line of, of reasoning I'm thinking about, which actually has a, um, a lot of it comes out of Princeton, actually, um, is a, a line of research in financial economics that has started to attempt mo to model uh, speculative bubbles on the basis of models of disagreement. So the idea is that, that bubbles are actually situations in which there is a wide, what's called kind of dispersion of opinion um, among different viewers about the value of the same thing. Um, and this is particularly um, uh, Harrison Hong and Jeremy Stein um, have written uh, a kind of an, an excellent article on it. Um, and there's similar, a, a lot of, um, there's a, a variety of different kind of related uh, research streams that are interested in the kind of limitations on rationality in the assessment of um, economic value, kind of theories of um, limited attention, for example, bounded rationality, um, similar things. But it's particularly these disagreement models. Um, Hong and Stein is the best example. So. One short question and one short answer. So I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Um, it's a scheme to get rid of the debt. Right. What happens to the debt? So one of the uh, interesting things that, that has been kind of only recently revived is that in some ways the South Sea bubble is a great triumph. As a public finance mechanism, it works kind of fantastically well. Um, and basically, part of the reason it works fantastically well is that it's essentially a massive scheme for a kind of wealth transfer um, from sort of uh, kind of gullible investors to the government. The government makes out like a bandit on this thing. Um, and they basically, what, the, there's a very interesting, actually the, the aftermath of the bubble is very interesting. The South, the South Sea Company gets kind of restructured um, in a variety of ways. Um, they think about doing weird things. They think about selling part of it to the Bank of England and part of it to the East India Company. Um, but basically, the South Sea Company kind of continues to exist as a sort of holding company um, for government debt, but as a way of kind of reducing interest rates, you know, transferring these irredeemable debts, um, kind of creating a scheme for kind of rational repayment of the national debt. This thing completely works. Let's thank Will again. <laughs>